All right, it's time for episode number 44 of the Divorce Resource Guy podcast. Divorce, conflict. Do you have a high-conflict divorce? Well, let's talk about it. Welcome to the Divorce Resource Guy podcast with Jason Lavoie, a.k.a. the Divorce Resource Guy, a former divorce attorney turned divorce coach, talking about all things divorce, including the good, bad, and the ugly from an attorney's point of view. Remember, you're not alone. And now, your host, Jason Lavoy. Welcome to another episode of the Divorce Resource Guy podcast. Thank you for joining me. Today, I have a great guest. We're talking about high-conflict divorce. And if you're in a contested divorce situation, then chances are it's pretty high conflict. My guest today is a partner of the law firm Whistleman Harunian and Associates based out of Long Island, Jacqueline Harunian. Uh, she began with the firm way back in 1993. Uh, she was a clerk in law school, and then she became a partner in 2006. She has a multidisciplinary background, including a graduate degree in behavioral, forensic, psychology, and family systems therapy. It enables her to adeptly handle complex divorce uh, and custody matters in the family court system, both in Long Island and New York City. Uh, she's recognized as an experienced trial and appellate advocate, and she believes that a negotiated settlement is always often the best strategy, especially when you're involving children, which I agree with wholeheartedly. Heartedly. Uh, her approach is, is straightforward, responsive, and client-focused. She emphasizes respect and compassion uh, during the process and guides her clients toward a holistic and cost-effective resolution, uh, which is in their best interest. So without further ado, let me welcome Jacqueline Harunian. Jackie, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm excited to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me to participate. Uh, I really enjoy talking about family law and all the changes going on. And so this is a great opportunity for me. Thank you very much, Jason. No, no, anytime. And I, I love having other attorneys on too, because, you know, hopefully at the end of all this, we kind of like support each other in what we're saying. And, and I'm sure you will. Um, but it's always good for people to hear from, you know, another mouth, so to speak, uh, than always just me. So you have uh, your own firm out there in Long Island, correct? That's right. Uh, my firm is in Great Neck. We have nine attorneys. The name of the firm is Whistleman, Harunian, and Associates. We're right on the border of Queens and Nassau County. Uh, we call ourselves a Long Island firm because we really cover all the courts on the island, also New York City, and we go up to Westchester as well. Um, and uh, our attorneys, uh, we also have a couple of mediators who are attorneys, so we try to cover that. And also, we really encourage mediation, uh, especially for cases that are simple and the parties are ready to resolve issues. Yeah, and we can get into that too if we have some time. Um, how long have you been practicing family law? I've been practicing family law for almost 25 years. I actually started with this firm, the same firm I'm a partner in, back when I was in law school uh, and I was admitted in 1995. I've had a very, very good run with my current partner, Jerry Whistleman. Um, and we've had, uh, thank God, a very, very successful high volume practice. Um, wow. Very fortunate. Excellent. Excellent. So, Let's get right into it. Um, today's topic is going to be like high conflict divorce. Um, what's your definition, if you have one, of, of high conflict? So, uh, you know, for me, I've, I've been thinking about it, this question. I, for me, it falls 
into that 80-20 rule or Murphy's Law, people call. Uh, statistically speaking, I think 80% of my clients, 8 out of 10 clients, fall along a normal trajectory where they might be angry and emotional when they first come in and meet with me. Some of them really have resolved their anger, and then those cases tend to stay out of court. But most cases, the vast majority, something like 80%, will resolve their cases within a year or so, and the parties will get back to a mode of co-parenting, will resolve financial issues, and move on to, to normal, productive lives, and they can move forward with other relationships. But then there's that 20%, maybe a little bit less, but two out of 10 cases that I would describe as high conflict. And those are people that are very angry when they start the process. And for whatever reason, uh, and there could be several reasons, they're not able to resolve that anger. Uh, You know, those cases end up in court. A small fraction of those cases go to trial and then even are appealed. And even for many years later, those parties, that small minority will keep fighting, will keep going back to family court, will externalize blame to everyone and really not be able to resolve issues with their ex. And those are the cases that uh, I would definitely describe as high conflict because there really is no answer for them in the legal system. They're going to keep fighting um, because they're dysfunctional in some way. And for sure, some of the blame maybe is more on one side than the other. Uh, Many times I, I have clients that are really playing defense because their ex just won't stop. And it's unfortunate because they have to keep defending themselves. But um, it's very sad because you can definitely see that the high conflict cases, it takes a toll on the parties. It takes a toll on children. And those people end up very bitter and and usually broke by the end. Yeah, I've seen cases. I've been involved in cases where, um, and this is one of the reasons why I kind of got out of it and turn to coaching because I would see people spending on legal fees, you know, their children's educations, right? Their futures. And it's just, it's heartbreaking in a way. You know, it is heartbreaking because it really is very self-destructive behavior. I mean, we all know divorce cases are expensive. Uh, You're in New Jersey. I'm in New York. It's very expensive to go through a divorce process, but people don't realize how much control they have over keeping fees down and getting divorce cases over more quickly. Clients, you know, they come into the process usually not knowing a lot. Uh, They're responsible for the lawyers that they choose, and they're responsible for not taking an active part in resolving issues. And, And that goes double for custody and parenting issues. Parents that choose to fight, that um, exacerbate custody issues, play games with the schedule, uh, you know, God forbid, are parental alienators or make false allegations. You know, these are not people that really should have primary custody, but they're very successful in um, sabotaging their ex's rights, uh, in fooling the court system, in dragging out cases. And, and, and these are people that really wreak havoc on their children. Uh, the average litigant is not that. I mean, the average person that I deal with, clients that I deal with, uh, you know, they're in emotional pain when the case starts. They're feeling angry. But I tell you, after a few weeks, after a month or two, you know, after they see their first legal bill, most of them uh, get it. They understand, oh boy, I better get involved and try to settle. And most of them, especially the ones that don't have uh, you know, lots of complex assets, 
they can they can be receptive to settlement proposals. They can um, be reasonable. They're they're uh, you know accepting the advice I give them. And more and more, the law is getting a little bit easier and more predictive. I can be pretty. I can make, take a pretty good guess on how these issues are going to be resolved in court. And when I tell clients that, most of them accept it and want this to be over in the worst way. Again, it's that twenty percent of high conflict cases where they're not receptive to advice, they're unreasonable, um, they're angry, and as a matter of fact, their goal is to drag the case out. They don't want it to be over. They want to continue their dysfunctional relationship with their ex by whatever means. And yeah, they'll spend a lot of money um, very foolishly to pay for experts and go uh, for hearings and um, file motions that oftentimes are unnecessary and ineffective. They, they, they enjoy the fight. And, and lawyers make money on that. So, you know, I, I wouldn't blame the lawyers, though. It's the clients that are hiring the lawyers. Lawyers have a right to make a living. They're advocates. Some of them, uh, you know, they make their name on being adversarial and fighting every issue. And, and the clients that go to them know exactly who they're hiring. All right. Yeah, you just brought up a whole bunch of good points that I want to kind of get into on the second layer here. Um, first, would you say that the majority of your high conflict cases, you know, the 20%, um, would the majority of them, if not all of them, have custody as one of the main issues involved? I mean, um, I would say people that are high conflict tend to be high conflict across the board. So yes, most couples that come to me do have children and the custody issue is, is a really good uh, breeding ground for conflict because um, it, it, it's so subjective and there's so many moving parts to it. And children are so complicated, especially teenagers. You know, there's so many areas where it can be exploited by a, a bad actor, a parent who really wants to win the children and, and, and hurt their spouse uh, who betrayed them or left them. And, and children are, are oftentimes pawns and used in the litigation. But I have seen high conflict cases after a six-month marriage. I have a lot of cases where it's a very short marriage there are virtually no issues to speak of, and yet those cases drag on for a very long time. So it's really the, the psychology of the parent that really determines whether it's high conflict or not, the, the psychology of the client, I should say. Uh, it, it really doesn't have to be children in the picture. They don't have to be assets in the picture. Uh, these are oftentimes uh, people with personality disorders, and I do have a graduate degree in psychology. I'm working on my master's right now. Uh, the more you learn about certain personality types, um, you know, people that are borderline or have power and control issues, uh, people that are um, violent, you know, domestic violence, it's all about power and control. A lot of times, the real nasty cases, you see elements of, of real personality disorders and a desire to use the court system to punish um, and, and really inflict pain on on someone that they used to love and got married and had children with. Yeah. So that's you, what we You also mentioned, you know, people in high conflict situations love to drag it out. And, and, and I want to ask you something about that because I, it, I get that question all the time. I've gotten it, you know, when I was practicing uh, divorce law and I get it now as a coach and I'd love what to hear what your response is on this. The, 
people, you know, are the majority of cases, right? People want to get it over to the divorce as soon as possible um, so they can move on with their lives. Nobody really enjoys being involved in a divorce unless perhaps like you just mentioned, you know, you're dealing with personality disorders and, you know, narcissists and, and, you know, a very slim group of people, but the people who, you know, just want to get divorced, want to get it over with, but the process is dragging out because the other side is intentionally dragging it out. Um, and they're so frustrated. They blame it on the system, the lawyers, is there anything that they can do to prevent yeah. that or to speed to speed it up? Or, you know, if one side wants to drag it out, there's really not much you can do about it. Well, I mean, it's not going to work in every case, but I always tell clients, and I say this during the initial consultation, which in my office is free. One of the first bits of free advice I give clients is if you want this case to be over sooner rather than later, if you want it to cost less rather than more. And if you want to reduce the, 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 the trauma on your children, you have to start from day one. And that is refusing to create an enemy in your ex. And that means always building bridges um, with your ex and other former family members for the sake of your children and creating a posture for negotiation that's amicable. Uh, it's very hard to do, especially in the first days and, and weeks um, but after tempers cool off and it becomes more clear to the parties that this is really about money and a deal has to be made, there should be every effort possible to keep things amicable and keep the negotiations moving. And when the attorneys are the problem, and sometimes they are, there are attorneys that will not return calls. There are attorneys that will not schedule four-way meetings or respond to proposals and counter-proposals. Then I tell my client, why don't you speak to your wife? Why don't you speak to your husband? Why don't you try to you know, extend an olive branch or suggest a resolution? And when clients hear that from me, and this is not advice in every case. There are some cases where it's not appropriate for the parties to communicate, especially if there's domestic violence. Right. But in the vast majority of cases, that is not a factor. And I tell my clients, you know, the attorney's not responding. Um, why don't you work out the schedule with your ex? Or why don't you have a discussion about what you're going to do about that timeshare that nobody wants and costs money or about those credit cards that need to be paid off? I mean, I find that at a certain point in the case, clients are receptive to hearing ways that they can get involved. Um, or if that is not something they're comfortable doing, um, they can send me their proposals, give me their ideas, um, help me prepare proposals to send to the other side. It really, in many cases, it comes down to communication between the attorneys, communication between the parties, a lot of emailing back and forth, pushing to move the case. Uh, if the case is in court, the judge is going to schedule the pace of the case. There's conferences and um, attorneys need to be active on their cases in between the conferences. Um, there's very little excuse for attorneys that don't respond to their clients, respond to proposals for settlement, produce documents. I mean, they're, they're, the attorneys do carry some of the responsibility, um, but the parties can do more too. And they should expect more of their attorneys and they should demand um, reasons. Why isn't my case moving forward? Why haven't we had a settlement meeting? You know, what are you doing on the case right now? And uh, if attorneys heard these from their clients, 
they would be, uh, I think, a little bit more attentive to the case sometimes. I, I think sometimes clients are a little bit passive. Um, you know, the case is unpleasant. They feel like they've hired their attorney to do the job and therefore they should stay out of it. But I think, um, I, I don't think that's, uh, that's good advice in a lot of cases. Clients should be expecting more from their attorneys and making sure the attorneys know that they expect progress on the case, um, especially if it's headed to court. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I agree with you that a lot of that information should be exchanged during that initial consultation. Uh, so you set those expectations uh, so the client knows what you want from them and what they can expect from you. But if, let's say your client, uh, you know, is looking at this from a efficiency point of view, wants to get this over with as cheaply and quickly as possible, um, and is doing everything you're asking them to do. But the other side, like you mentioned, is non-responsive. Perhaps the attorney is part of the problem. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, they're just not doing anything to make progress, uh, except when the court requires you to go in. Is there anything you could do about that or you just kind of have to deal with it in that scenario? I mean, it's, it's hard. No, I, I don't want to throw other attorneys under the bus. We all have, uh, you know, reasons why we can't attend to cases. There are many attorneys uh, like myself that are in court a lot and a trial or a hearing can definitely uh, take up a lot of time and, and put other cases on the back burner. I t- totally understand that. And that's especially true when attorneys are solo practitioners uh, and they're in court all day and, and never able to really catch up with the volume of emails and calls that come in. I think that's one of the benefits of working in a firm. Um, You know, we have a larger firm here and the cases just don't sit. They move in this case, uh, in this office, because uh, cases are assigned to associates and partners and they are attended to. Um, And and they're not adjourned indefinitely because an attorney can't appear. There's always somebody else that can cover. Uh, But what can the client do? I mean, sometimes a client will contact me and say, you know, what's happening on my case? Uh, what happened after that meeting, and I will put it in my email. I love to email, and I'll say, listen, what's happening is I've, I've called and emailed the other lawyer, and there's no response. Um, why don't you talk to your husband about it? And she'll take my email and forward it to her husband, and then her, her the husband will realize for the first time that his attorney is not being attentive to the case, and that will cause a phone call to the other attorney or a complaint, you know, Clients are spending a lot of money for matrimonial counsel. They deserve good service and a responsive attorney, and they don't always get that. Uh, and unfortunately, that causes cases to drag. Uh, and again, I don't want to disparage other counsel. Uh, you know, we are all busy practitioners, uh, but I do think responding to clients, responding to opposing counsel and the court is one of our highest responsibilities, and, and it is what it takes to get cases to the finish line. Right. It's our and job. It's our job. Absolutely. And I think choosing the right attorney for your particular case is, uh, you know, it's so vital. Um, you know, and one of the things is, are you dealing with somebody, um, you know, who's a sole practitioner, maybe overworked, you know, and, and doesn't have really doesn't have the time for you. You need to you need to kind of try to ascertain that in the consultation, I think, and and then and then choose accordingly. But do you ever in do you ever mandate your clients to be in therapy uh, in in a high conflict case from your from your point of view? Um, saying oh, like, listen, good. go ahead. That's a great question. It's a great question. Um, 
I actually think most clients uh, really would benefit from a course of individual therapy and, and their children too. And it, it's rare to find a client who's dealing with the challenges and the crisis of a divorce case that wouldn't benefit from a few sessions. Um, so I'm just going to put that out there. I'm very, very supportive of mental health intervention in a divorce or separation. Um, and, and I think more people should consider it because it's really not something that's used against them. Um, unless it's a contested custody case, in which case my advice might be a little bit different. But, um, in the, in the average case, uh, where joint custody is a given, which is really most cases these days, uh, if parties are feeling stressed, if they need help from a therapist, they should go seek that help. And then there are clients that, um, with the passage of time, you know, and their cases are going on, uh, that I notice that they seem depressed, angrier than when the case started, frustrated and upset. I mean, for sure, I'm going to make a point of telling that client, do they want a referral to a therapist? Uh, and my office maintains a database of 500 names of mental health professionals and addiction specialists and marriage counselors. And I'm very happy to give out names. I always give out several because I, I really do think most clients would find relief. Uh, a lot of times it's covered under their insurance or they can work out a payment plan. And it, it's never a good idea to use a lawyer as a therapist. It's just too expensive. It's much more cost effective to use a trained mental health professional. And, and I would include you know, life coaches and divorce coaches in that category. There are a number of many good ones that I network with that also have um, you know, advice to share that can be very helpful and can help people, you know, move past this negative chapter into something more positive. Um, and, and there's other ways. I mean, I have a list of self-care strategies uh, that I give out to clients. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, maintaining a good diet, exercise, meeting friends, um, you know, seeking other pathways to wellness during a divorce process because, it's a stressful time and there are ways to cope with that stress. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really about just taking care of yourself emotionally, physically, um, like you said, on all fronts, um, because going through a divorce is probably one of the most traumatic times of your life, right? It, it absolutely is. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's out there that second to a death, divorce is one of the most stressful things that a person can go through. It, it is in many ways like a death. And, and, and people react to um, these types of traumas differently. There are, there are clients I have that are very resilient and they're able to shake it off and move, move uh, you know, go out there again and even thrive after a divorce uh, relatively quickly. And I have clients that, uh, for whatever reason, and a lot of it does have to do with psychology and how people deal with loss, there are clients of mine that many years later, I'm very sad to hear that they still haven't really recovered. Uh, and a lot of times those are the ones that are prone to keep litigating um, because they're just in a negative place and, and they don't know how to really fix it. Yeah. And then we didn't talk about, but we'll touch on it now, you know, the children um, in, in regards to therapy, how important it is for the children to be taken care of in, in a kind of therapy session? Yeah. Uh, there's no question about it. I mean, um, just like with the parents, children run the gamut from different reactions to the divorce process. Generally, children that are very, very young are unscathed. I mean, most of it really just kind of flies over their head. 
but children that are school age, and I mean five, age five through 11, are, are very much affected. Uh, you know, they're used to the stability and security of a schedule, uh, of having a bedtime, of having parents in the home. And they're very affected by conflict. Uh, they're very affected by overhearing adult conversations about money or about other things. And um, they're very much at risk. And then teenagers, which I really started age 11, 12, generally they're more focused on their friends and their smartphones and they're pretty selfish and what they're really focused on. But they can also be very much affected um, because teenagers can really carry a lot of anger, which comes out later on. And if there's a lot of conflict, you know, teenagers have different ways of tuning out. We can, we can really affect them. You know, they can be, become withdrawn and depressed. All of these are reasons why, you know, children should be taken to a therapist or the school psychologist should keep tabs on them. A lot of schools have banana splits or other types of support groups. Um, these are all very effective because children need support. And uh, a lot of times parents that are going through their own pain in a divorce, they, they kind of use the child as a confidant. And that, that's wrong. They shouldn't do that. They shouldn't be, you know, confronting their children with all of these emotions that they have uh, as they unravel. They really need to compartmentalize that and, and save that for their own friends and therapists and let the children get through this with as normal of a life as possible. Uh, very, very hard to do. But as I said, I coach clients to do this from the very first consultation to really put the children first and uh, try to set the stage for an amicable resolution. And it really does start from the beginning. Right. It, it's an easy concept. You know, in New Jersey, we call it in the best interest of the children. It, it's, yeah. it, it's, yeah. easy, it's easy to conceptualize, hard to execute all the time. Yeah, um, no, no, I agree. But when, but would you agree that when, when, parents, you know, maybe not necessarily intentionally, but start, right, airing the dirty laundry of the divorce um, to the children, either directly or indirectly, but the children are, are, are hearing this, those some, sometimes, or most of the time, I would say, are the seeds of, you know, alienation. Yeah. No, that's true. I mean, a lot of times, parents, it's, it's usually the father, but not always, there becomes the pattern of conflict in the house that goes on for many years. And the father's response to that is to sort of remove himself. And then the children become heavily influenced by the alienating parent. And uh, when the divorce happens, the father is blamed uh, for all of the financial upheaval um, or uh, infidelity or whatever the issues might be. And the children already are aligned with the mother. They've already uh, you know, decided that the father... Uh, that his rights and spending time with him aren't as important. And the seeds for that are planted many years before, and I've seen it happen from birth, where, uh, you know, it is an unhealthy dynamic. And um, it's very hard to reverse that. It, it really is very hard to reverse that. Um, I've seen some therapists do a great job. I've seen children in their teenage years suddenly rebel against their mother, or, yep. you know, or, or whoever the, the alienating parent is. Um, but it takes time and uh, it's heartbreaking. These are very, very difficult cases where the remedies, you know, are not always perfect. And uh, for sure, these cases are expensive because you need mental health professionals. What I do know is that letting time pass is the worst thing you can do. I mean, these things do not get better on their own. Alienation cases need to be addressed early. 
Yep. Uh, you know, clients need to, because uh, this is a type of high conflict case, uh, alienation cases, you have to keep a notebook, record the incidents, collect the text messages, make sure you have a record. And, and sometimes it's subtle, but in the aggregate, when, these, when this evidence is presented to a lawyer, the lawyers know what parental alienation is, and so do the judges, because those are the cases that end up in court. Um, and so the signs, the red flags, you know, if the client is, is, has a history of it, um, we can put together a case and get the case into court, get an attorney appointed for the child and forensics or uh, therapeutic visitation or whatever it is. Uh, all of these things can be attempted and they should be attempted. I always tell parents they shouldn't give up on their children. There are so many ways now to stay in touch with a child with text message and FaceTime and, you know, various things you can do online and virtually and in real time. Uh, there are so many ways that you can express to your child that you care and that they're, uh, you know, a focus of your attention. And um, a lot of these are very effective. Um, but to ignore it and, 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 and sort of live in denial, that's, that's the worst thing. And and the and and one of the the worst things that happens is, from my experience is that eventually after this is going on long enough and and you've been fighting about it and not seeing progress the alienated parent chooses just to give up and 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 say okay the child doesn't want me in their life then even though that's not what I want I'll you know for their sake and everybody's sake and then it disappear um, and, and that's not good either I just spoke with. Um, I don't know. Do you know who Bill Eddy is? I've heard the name. Yes, I know he's a, he's in this field, right? In yeah, he's a, from the High Conflict Institute. He's the author of the book yeah. Splitting. Yeah, I've I've heard of him. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I just had him on the show, and and he was saying, you know, that the best way to address alienation cases is not to have you know therapy in New Jersey. We call it re reunification therapy and stuff, but not to have therapy with the child and the alienated parent alone. It really has to be everybody, you know, both parents and the child um, right. working at this together. Um, and that's the most effective way. I mean, that, that makes sense. You know, I think there, if you have a, and it has to be a very skilled therapist yeah. that can uh, sort of handle two strong personalities and a child that's, been affected and, and, and to confront the alienating parent with their own behaviors. And sometimes it is unconscious. It's not always intentional. Um, and, and, and to really train that parent to stop with the alienating behaviors and the remarks. And um, it really does take a lot of focus and motivation and coaching for, for clients to be able to take on parental alienation because it is so painful and it's so much easier just to kind of check out and walk away and, and thinking that that's what's best for the child. And people will tell me, you know, my child's small. Maybe when the child's older, uh, you know, I'll have more luck. And, and I, I don't know that that's the best uh, attitude. I, I really think um, addressing it early is the right move. And even if that's the case, like you said, Jackie, you know, the child is, you know, I've heard this many times also where years later when the child's adult or emancipated, um, they kind of realize what happened and then they rebel against the you know, the alienating parent and, and then reestablish the relationship with the, with the other parent, but you still have lost all those years in between. Yeah. And, so, and that's, what, yeah. that's the sad part. Very much so. Yeah. So Jackie, we have only a, a couple minutes left, but I wanted to ask you, uh, and I didn't address this. I'm going to put you on the spot, but did you see the Netflix show marriage story? 
I, I, I did, yes. And I've actually gotten a number of calls from reporters to, to talk about it. Uh, it was a very, very um, good film. Let's talk yeah. about it for a second. Because sure. I, I love, especially from another attorney, um, how, how did you feel about it? What was your general uh, impression? Uh, it, it, it really rang true for me in many, many ways. I'm sure the socioeconomics and the systems are very similar in New York and L.A., so I'm sure that's why. Um, and the relocation issue in New York to L.A. is also a very common thing, or New York to Florida. Right. So relocation is, is a big part of my, of, uh, my practice. It is a high-conflict type of issue because it's effectively a custody issue that's very difficult to resolve when you have people that live on opposite ends of the country. Uh, it was a great movie. I mean, the acting performances were great. I really enjoyed uh, the three lawyers, um, the Laura Dern and the um, Ray Liotta and the Alan Alda. I thought they were really good composites of different types of lawyers that we have in our profession. Um, you know, the, the home, the social worker's home visit, I thought that was really, really, you know, funny. And at the same time, a little dark, uh, you know, with all the, you know, all the, uh, the blood on the knife and all that. It was just really, really interesting, you know, scenes in this movie that really rang true. And, and luckily, I don't want to spoil it for the audience. I think everyone should see it. Uh, if they're thinking of getting married or thinking of getting divorced, it's a, it's a must-see movie. Uh, so I don't want to spoil it, but it, it came to a very satisfying ending too. So it's a great film. Yeah. The, uh, although Jackie, it's not star Wars with, with the spoilers, you know, it's not like that. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. But no, I, but I, but I hear you. So let's talk about the, the portrayal of the attorneys. Um, like you said, the Ray, Ray Liotta, the, you know, I guess I would call him right. The aggressive. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. one, that's one word was, for him. Aggressive. But, yeah, you know the shark, right? The quote shark unquote. The, yeah. Do you think that portrayal was accurate, or was that just kind of like a uh, embellishment? I mean, I think I think it was a caricature. I think it was for sure exaggerated. I mean, he was like a psychopath. I mean, he was like really, really a little bit too aggressive, um, and and really played a role in creating a, a very, very uh, sort of unbalanced client. Um, and and it, it, the client, you know, there were a lot of clues. I was talking about this with a reporter about so many clues in the movie uh, that the father was just sort of taking the wrong advice uh, and taking the child with him to visit all these attorneys and, and not really putting the child first. Uh, to me, it seemed like the mother got better advice and she hired a better attorney. Um, yeah, the Ray Liotta, you know, he wanted to litigate every issue and take very, very extreme positions. Um, both attorney, Laura Dern was also quite aggressive. Yeah, I thought she was just as aggressive, but almost she in a uh, yeah, ha- more passive was, way, right? Yeah, and, and the scene in the courtroom where the attorneys were just ripping the clients to shreds, uh, you know, and then the two parties looking at each other, you know, this is not what they wanted, but this is what this is really what the adversarial system of justice really is. That's what you hire a lawyer to do. And in the end, the law, the judge was just like, you know, go and come back another time. You know, it, they didn't really get much out of the judge. And I think that's realistic too. You know, the judges are not going to make rulings in a case, um, in a custody case that early on. So it really is left up to the attorneys and the clients to, to really figure it out. Um, so I thought that. Yeah, I almost got, uh, the impression that the courtroom scene, you know, was the both attorneys, um, you could, you could tell, or are you there? 
Yeah. Okay. Yep. The, the the courtroom scene, you know, you could right. I think right before they they went in, uh, they passed each other in, in the hall. The attorneys, and you know, they they're cordial because they see each other a lot. They know each other and they respect each other, um, and they know what kind of attorney each one is. And then they played up to that in court, uh, and maybe that was for their clients. But I think. In my opinion, both clients hired the wrong attorneys for their their, yeah. their case because they were pretty amicable. Um, yeah. And I feel like both of their attorneys kind of steered them into this really adversarial positions. But what do you think about that? Yeah, no, no. I think you're right. I think uh, if they had both hired the Alan Alda type movie, because I think uh, the Alan Alda attorney was was much more reasonable. Uh, and um, really kept his client calm and was empathetic. You know, those are the cards he was dealt. Well, right. You're almost sometimes you're forced into positions like that. Um, and, and that's just the nature of the beast. All right. Well, yeah. I'm, glad we, I'm glad we got a chance to talk yep. about it for a few minutes. Because um, I always thought, I thought it was a, a really interesting film, uh, well acted and uh, I, I'm always interested to feel what hear what other attorneys have to uh, say about it. So, thanks for sharing your your thoughts on that. Yes. Now, Jackie, where can people find you? Oh, hello. Can you hear me? Hello. Can you hear me? Hello. Can you hear me? All right. Where can people find you? So um, my, my website is lawjaw.com, L-A-W-J-A-W.com. I have a lot of information on there. I'm also very active on LinkedIn. I love to interact with other financial professionals and mental health professionals. Um, and uh, I do a lot of speaking in areas of my expertise. I do quite a bit of CLE um, for other attorneys and judges. Uh, the new Areas that I'm speaking about include uh, religious divorce, fertility law, cyber harassment, all kinds of new cutting edge issues, um, and just other overview of family law, which we all know family law has changed so much over the past 10 years. So many issues, tax issues, uh, custody issues are very different than they were, uh, you know, only a few years ago. So a lot of speaking engagements, and those are all on my website. Excellent. Yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot to talk about, and uh, I'd love to have you on the show again in the future, and we could talk about any one of those things. Um, so thank you so much, Jackie, for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. It was really nice speaking with you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Jason. All right, thank you, Jackie, for that wonderful talk, and especially at the end, I like talking about marriage story because I find that um, it's such an interesting portrayal on how the attorneys and the clients. Uh, are approaching the divorce process, and I don't think it's it's frankly uh, over dramatized uh, at all. So uh, I love talking with other lawyers about the, that movie. Now I know the sound kind of got a little choppy at points there. I apologize, everybody, uh, for that, but uh, I did the best that I could, um, and I think I think it came out overall pretty well, and you can understand what she was talking about, and hopefully you got something out of this episode. If you're interested and looking for some divorce help with your situation, uh, then check out my programs on my website, jasonlavoy.com. I offer a variety of divorce coaching programs uh, through Divorce You and a group coaching program, How to Divorce a Narcissist 
Bootcamp. And of course, I can always customize according to whatever needs you may need. So don't delay. You're not alone. And you shouldn't have to deal with getting divorced alone. So uh, if you haven't yet, subscribe to the podcast so you get all new episodes when they come out every other Tuesday right now. And other than that, I only have three things I need you to do. Be strong, act confident, stay positive, and stay safe out there, everybody. This is Jason Lavoie, a.k.a. The Divorce Resource Guy, signing off for now. Thank you.